Let's stand together. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 through verse 8. Reading, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Lord, we need your help this morning to, to see what it is, Lord, that you would desire for us to grab a hold of, to understand and to believe. Allow us, Lord, to be people who are teachable, that as we see ourselves reflected in the application and implication of this text, that we would be ready to confess our sins, ready to repent, ready to believe new things or uh, change our attitudes or to trust you in ways that maybe we haven't before. And allow me, Lord, simply to be your messenger and to reflect this truth, Lord, to your people in such a way that their eyes are open and they are able to grasp what it is that you have for them. So, Lord, what, what we know not would you teach us, what we have not would you give us, and what we are not, Lord, would you make us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sure you've all heard this story before. It's a very famous story, but it's worth bringing out at the beginning here, and it's about uh, the philosopher Socrates, and he was walking along a beach one day with with a number of the young disciples of his, so to speak, and there was a, a, a young man that came up and he says, Socrates, Socrates, I, I want knowledge. Give me knowledge. And so he walked down into the water with this young man. And he said, what is it you want? He says, I want knowledge. And so he took him by his head and he put him under the water and held him down, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And finally the man comes up and he's spitting and, Socrates says, what, what is it that you want? And the guy's like, oh, it's great, Socrates, I want wisdom, give me wisdom. And he says, okay, puts him under the water again. You know, another 30 seconds, the guy comes up. Yeah, and, you know, Socrates, Socrates, I want wisdom. So Socrates puts him down. He just repeats this whole thing. And finally, he puts him down a little longer. And the, the, the person comes up and he says, young man, what is it you want? And the young man says, I want air. And he says, if you long for knowledge like you are longing for air, then we will have accomplished something, something along those lines. Now, friends, the point here is this. He was trying to get across that sometimes we boast great things and we want great things, but do we actually want to, to breathe those things? Are they essential to our being? And this morning, as we reflect over our text, there's going to be some things that James is going to share that are going to be what God is desiring that we breathe, what God desires that are essential for us, in particular in the midst of trials. And we have last week looked at James revealing for us this, this whole process of counting it joy, recognizing that your trials are making or are producing steadfastness, and that the goal of all of those trials is our maturity, described uh, there in verse 4, being perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. In other words, grown up without sin and fully equipped. And then notice right away, in verse 5, he says, if any of you lack wisdom. In other words, he's saying, that is all of you. Because none of you have actually arrived at that place of maturity. 
None of you is lacking in nothing. In fact, you're lacking in something. And what is the something then that he is addressing here? Well, he's seeking to ask, answer the question, what is it I need to face trials? What is the, the air that I need to breathe when in, enduring those trials? And this morning, we're going to find three spiritual resources for joyfully enduring trials that flow out of this text. Now, last week, we talked about the, the need for embracing an attitude of joy, uh, of appreciating the activity of steadfastness that comes with that trial, and ultimately pursuing that agenda of maturity. But now, as we look at this text, James builds on that with these three resources that we desperately need in order to joyfully endure these trials. And the three resources James presents are wisdom, prayer, and faith. And friends, the, the truth of the matter is, as James presents these, they are all intertwined together. They are all working together. You can't separate one from the other. They're all necessary. And so the air that we breathe is wisdom, prayer, and faith. These are the, 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 the resources, the ingredients that we need in order to face these trials. That's what he's saying. They don't stand alone. They're intertwined. Yet at the same time, we are going to look at them individually. But just notice then the logic of this text. You lack wisdom... So seek wisdom through prayer. But make sure that prayer is offered by faith. And make sure that faith isn't double-minded. Okay? So you see, this is kind of like this long, logical flow. In other words, to say it differently, we must come to God by faith, praying for wisdom. So you have wisdom, prayer, and faith. But they're all working together. But for our purposes this morning, we want to look at them individually and then kind of uh, see how they're working together. So let's begin, first of all, with uh, the need for wisdom, for divine wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and it will be given him. Right? To, to turn tests into maturity, the one thing you must not lack is wisdom. So we need to ask God for wisdom so that we can gain from trials. But it's important for us to recognize then that there is this thing called the wisdom of the world. And friends, if we're honest, too often we find ourselves taking comfort or seeking the comfort of the wisdom of the world. Rather than turning to God, we seek what the world says. So let's think through a couple of things here that relate to the wisdom of the world. This certainly isn't going to be exhaustive, but it will be a summary. The world's wisdom is full of its own ideologies. And that comes out in a number of ways. It's driven by political passions. Behind those politics are ideologies. And we're seeing that fleshed out today. There are belief systems that, that push political movements, right? There's psychological insight. The world today is going to say the reason you do this is because of such and such psychological system. Years ago, it was, you know, why is this, why is this young man, you know, always getting cart, uh, caught by the police um, doing carjackings? And the conclusion was, it's the neighborhood he lives in. He has no option but to behave and act this way. It's a psychological solution, but it isn't necessarily getting to the heart of the issue. Or there's just practical ideas that are not, that, that are not willing to take God into consideration. God is not allowed. I should say the God of the Bible is not allowed within the world's ideologies. Secondly, it's the world's system that turns to its own experts. I just want you to think about this. This, this. Our culture is full of its own experts. Let me just list a few of them. Some of them are, are experts that you listen to daily. All right? Dr. Phil, 
Oprah, Rush Limbaugh, CNN, Fox News, and we can go on and on and on. You feed on these things, right? Or we listen to studies. We, we listen to empirical data. You know, you want empirical data? We have empirical data. But we know that these studies can be manipulated to say what people want them to say, not actually looked at for what they are. You know, we did such and such a study, and it suggests that. When you see the words suggest, you realize there's nothing clear about it. All right? But this is it's presented as fact because it suggests. You know what? Suggest does not mean we found, you know, we found that one particular thing. But people love studies, which kind of moves then to the next one. That is, it tends to listen to polls. What are polls? Polls typically are what people think. What people say or believe. You know, which team do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? It doesn't matter what you think. A team's going to win. And someone's going to be right. But that's just what people think. But we today are far more concerned about what people think than truth. And we don't want to say things that society doesn't think are important. We want to make sure we're, you know, we're, we're with the people. We're saying the right things. And so polls are used to basically say, this is how you should think. Or listen to science. Now, friends, there's science. We love science. The Bible is a book that recognizes science to be true. It isn't inconsistent with science at all. But there's science, and then there's bogus science. And so the world's experts determine if something is true or not, something should be acceptable or not, something should be taught or not, but not necessarily based on fact, but based on its own ideology. And so there's this kind of like circular reasoning going on. We have an ideology, we go to science, and the reason we go to science is so that we can reinforce our ideology with what we perceive to be facts. Now I'm just painting a picture here to say there is this wisdom of the world. It's full of its own ideologies. It's full of its own experts, but it also has its own standard of truth. You might even say its own epistemology, its own source of truth. Let me, let me share some things that the world says. You are number one. You are what matters most. You know, you go to one of these, you know, positive thinking seminars, you know, you've got to put yourself in first place. You are what matters. You know, I did it my way. I won. I conquered. Look at me. Facebook selfie. It's all about me, right? And if I am number one, then hear this, then my feelings matter most. What I feel is the most important thing about me. Therefore, if I feel a certain way, whether it's right or wrong, you have no business speaking into it. Because I feel it, I have the right to believe it, and therefore it is true for me. So if I feel that I'm a cat, guess what? I'm a cat. And, and you might think I'm delusional, and you might want to help me, but how dare you contradict what I feel? Because if I feel like I'm a cat, guess what? I'm a cat, and I'm going to dress like a cat, I'm going to behave like a cat. And we're not allowed now to say, you know, you might want to rethink this. You look more like a... Anyway, all right, so, no, this is the problem, right? The world's ideology has, has gotten to a place where, where you're number one, your feelings matter the most, and then what the experts claim is the source of truth becomes the source of truth. So if the expert says, this is true, that then becomes the source of truth, whether it's some kind of ideology or political movement or social kind of attitude that's what happens. So there's this wisdom of the world. And friends, sometimes the wisdom of the world can be clearly seen. At other times, it enters into the church dressed up in Christian language and expression. And therefore, we need to be discerning. When I first came to California, one of my associate pastors was caught up with a faulty view of man. And it was evident in his preaching, it was evident in his counseling, it was evident in the conversations he had with me and with other people. And even though I 
took him to the Word of God and showed him his error, he still chose to dig his heels in. He had bought into the sentimental and cultural philosophy of life that you see a lot in Disney and a lot of the Hallmark movies that stress that the test of whether something was right or not was what you felt in your heart. And so the answer was always, follow your heart. Now, friends, that is so contrary to Scripture. And yet this is what was coming from the pulpit. As if this is what God says, because God gave you a new heart. Yes, but it's also desperately wicked. Right? It's just not a healthy understanding. And friends, people were saying, oh, this is great. Yeah, this is good. And so friends, popular psychology can creep into the church using the language of Christianity, and we've got to be discerning to see what it is. Later in James' letter, he makes a distinction between the wisdom of the world that is not from above and the wisdom that is from God. Look at James chapter 3 and verse 14 through 17. Here's what he says. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That's a picture of, that's a description of the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom that doesn't come down from above. But then he goes on and says, there's the wisdom that is from above. This is the wisdom of God. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, friends, we cannot afford to get those two wisdoms mixed up, can we? What we need to make sure of, that we, and also what we need to understand, is that the wisdom of the world is directly opposed to the wisdom of God, and we need to be discerning to be able to see one as opposed to the other. So there's the wisdom of the world. Now there's the wisdom of God. We need divine wisdom. And the wisdom of God is rooted in Two things, I would put it this way, in the character of God and his revealed word. So the revealed word actually reveals the character of God, but you have to say to yourself, if God is this, then he won't do this, right? There, there's something about the character of God that shapes now our understanding of what he thinks and how he will behave. Hebrews 11.6 says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, Right? who he is, and that he rewards those who seek him, what he does, what he reveals, what he rewards there. So if you come to God for wisdom, you must believe in him, and you must believe in what he says. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is not simply knowledge or intelligence, although those things are important. It is not simply cognitive or mental. Ultimately, it is moral. It is Believing what God says. Matthew chapter 7 is an example of that, right? The wise man builds his house on a what? Right? On a rock. The foolish man builds his house on the sand, right? The foolish man hears God's word, but ignores it and fails to put it into practice. The wise man hears God's word and puts them into practice. Both hear God's word, but the foolish man chooses to ignore God's word. The wise man chooses to believe God's word. So wisdom is the skillful application of knowledge. That might be a, a kind of more a dictionary definition, but a biblical uh, understanding of wisdom is this. Wisdom is the skillful application of the knowledge of the character of God and his revealed word. So when you take what you know about God and you take what, what Scripture has revealed and you're able then to skillfully apply all that to your situation, in particular, in this context, to your trial, that is wisdom. All right, It's skillfully applying those things to your particular trial. You talk about going to a wise craftsman because you want some furniture built for your house. You can go to Ikea, all right? 
which a lot of us do. Um, it's cheaper, and the instructions are easy. Um, as you know, they're not, right? Uh, or you can go to a wise craftsman. I lived in Buffalo, New York for a number of years. And if you go south from Buffalo, you get into Amish territory. And let me tell you, those people know how to build furniture. And they are master craftsmen. They are wise at what they do. Now, God is calling us in the midst of our trials to be wise, to be skillful with understanding who he is and what he says and applying that then into the context of what we're going through. So knowledge has its place and is necessary, but it is not sufficient by itself. Godly knowledge must be applied skillfully in order for wisdom to take place. So there's not only this wisdom that is defined. Let me just highlight a couple of things. Wisdom is, is pursued. We saw that when we were in the book of Job, chapter 28 in particular. It's all about wisdom. And there, basically, Job argued this, that wisdom cannot be mined. He argues that it cannot be bought, but it can only be given by God. Here's how he says it. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. In other words, he's the only the only one who understands wisdom. And he also says that, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil, that is understanding. It's all contained as kind of a, a conclusion of the thought there in Job 28. But not only is wisdom something that we should pursue, wisdom is also something that we find in Scripture is personified. And I would like for you to turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. You may or may not know this passage, but Proverbs chapter 1 unfolds for us just an argument about wisdom, and wisdom there is personified. I just want, I want you to see what it says. We'll begin at verse 20 of Proverbs 1. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. In other words, she wants you to listen. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffings and fools hate knowledge? If you turn to my reproof, Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. That's kind of wisdom saying, I've told you, I've told you, I've told you, I've told you. You choosing to ignore it? It's on you. I will mock when terror strikes, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not finally. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their way and have their fill uh, of their own devices, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell securely and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Well, that was a pretty powerful statement there by wisdom. And God is saying to us, listen, I am giving you instruction. I'm giving you counsel. I have given you my word. I've given you an understanding of who I am. Will you then use that? in such a way and apply those truths to your particular situation so that you can understand what is taking place and why God is bringing this trial into your life. So in order to, for us to face those trials, even as we've learned from the book of Job, we need to have a right perspective, a right plan, a right philosophy about how to press on. So we saw in the book of Job that God is compassionate and merciful. I think a surprise to all of us that when Job speaks of Job and God's relationship to Job in that way later in his book. And, and, and he doesn't give Job a full understanding of what's going on, but, but he knew that God had everything under control. 
and that was helpful for him. James now is saying, not only does God have it under control, but he is at work through your steadfastness in that trial, growing you to maturity. So the first thing we've seen here is that we need divine wisdom. And friends, please, 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 be careful of the wisdom of the world and pursue the kind of wisdom that comes from knowing God and through his word. Apply that to your life. Secondly, there's a need then for diligent prayer. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Well, that's prayer. That's speaking to God. It's one thing to know you lack wisdom, but it's another thing to ask God for that wisdom. You can walk around in ignorance. And sometimes people love the fact that they're ignorant because they feel that it gives them an excuse. But it's one other thing to say, God, I need wisdom. So we need to understand that prayer is something that connects our poor, feeble lives with the Almighty. It constructs a pipeline, so to speak, from his sufficiency to our inadequacy. And certainly we feel inadequate. We go through trials. I don't think we're all like, hey, got this one covered. I, I think we feel inadequate. We feel like, all right, God, I'm, I'm going through this. I'm trusting in these things, but I need help. I need direction. I need counsel. And so we pray oftentimes for the trial to be lifted, don't we? I mean, isn't that what happens? You know, we're going through a trial and we say, Lord, deliver us from the trial. Have we considered, however, that God's plan may not be for that trial to be lifted just yet? <gasps> or even maybe at all? We may find that we're still struggling with a subtle form of prosperity gospel because we are convinced that God wants to lift us out of our trial. But does he? I'm just, just ultimately, <laughs> but we got to be careful here. So with that in mind, has it occurred to us then if we are to go through this trial, that we need wisdom in that trial? And in order to get that wisdom, we must pray for that wisdom for that trial? Have we asked God to help us handle it in a way that would bring him glory and leave a positive impression on those around us? Have we considered that what James wants us to understand is that unanswered prayer is not the main problem here? That the main problem here is unasked prayer? Now, friends, there are some hindrances to prayer. Reasons why we don't turn to God in prayer. And I'm just going to share a few of them, and you might resonate with some of these. All right, we believe or are blinded by the wisdom of the world. We, we don't even think about asking God for prayer because we're so consumed with the world's philosophy. Sometimes we see ourselves as unworthy. God would not help me because I have failed him so many times, right? We don't think that God has time for us. He's too big. He's too powerful. He's so aloof. Why would he be concerned with someone like me? I'm just like an ant on an anthill. Why would God even care about me? We don't think that God wants us to work it out, or we, want, we think that God wants us to work it out by ourselves, I mean, isn't that what it means to be responsible? Here's what you have, now go do it. Well, yeah, but we're supposed to do it in God's way and with his help. Or how about this one? We just don't think we need God's help. I think a lot of times that's where we're at. I got this one. It'll be all right. It's cool. Or finally, we just, we just don't see the point. We don't understand why going to God and praying for wisdom would actually change anything. I mean, what's going to magically happen? I get, you know, I wake up from my prayer and all of a sudden I look around and it's like, oh, I've got this big mind. And, you know, we have a, a faulty view of prayer and how prayer is a means by which God is bringing us to a place so that we can gain wisdom. So let's talk a little bit about what James does now as he gives us four truths or four reasons that help us to pray with diligence and with confidence. 
He says, let him ask. And he talks about God then who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Do you see that there in the text? Now, let's just think of it. Just don't, don't blow by this. Let's notice the four things that he says here. First of all, God gives. Now, just pause there. God gives. He is a giving God. God gives and acts according to his character. Now, notice in just a few verses, verses verse 17, that this is what James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He, he is giving, and he's giving good gifts. One year at Christmas, my brother gave me a gift. I was, top of my list was, I want a BB gun. Back in those days, just so you know, all of you Californians, all right, there are these things called BB guns, right? And, and you could actually go out and have fun with your friends and shoot each other and stuff like that. And I only shot a few eyes out, okay? That's just, it was perfectly healthy. Anyway, I wanted a BB gun. And so I was like excited because under the tree was this, 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 this present. And I thought, oh, my brother, he's got me a BB gun. And it was, it was long. And, and, and uh, it, it, I picked it up and I shook it. And it's like, oh, I can, I can hear like the ammo, the BBs that are in there. And it had the weight to it. And I was so excited. And Christmas Day came. And of course, the first present I wanted to open was this. And I started to unwrap it and opened it up. And it was a stick of bamboo. Taped to the bamboo was a matchbox full of matches that made noise. Taped to the bamboo, strategically in the right place, was a bag of rocks to give it some weight. That was not a good gift. That was an evil gift, all right? Now, that's what Satan does. That's what my brother did, if you get the connection there, okay? He offers us things that we think will be great gifts full of promise, but when we open them, we only find them to be empty promises. But God is not like that, friends. God is a giver of good gifts. He gives us gifts that leave us in wonder of Him. He's a great God and He gives. Don't let that slip by. Secondly, He is a God who gives generously. He's not miserly. He's not one who delights in withholding blessing from people. He is a generous giver. You might think of, of God's giving as a, as a pitcher full of blessing that's always tilted, ready to pour. He's ready to give us wisdom, and he is generous in that giving. Now, that word generous literally means simple. In other words, it's a simple, pure gift. In other words, God is saying, here you go, it's yours, take it. He's not saying, if you want wisdom, I want you to go on this quest. And on this quest, you're going to find all these different people. You're going to have to pick up this coin and this jewel, and you're going to fight this dragon. And when you come back, then I'll give you wisdom. No, God says, if you ask for wisdom, guess what? Here you go. It's simple. It's generous. Not only is it generous, or is he, he gives and he gives generously, but he also gives to all. Now, this might be, first of all, uh, something he's saying to his audience that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, because in that early church, especially, you know, James being one of the earlier epistles here, there may have been this problem between, you know, who, who is preferred, the Jews? Do they have some, you know, they have a special bat phone to God or, or the Gentiles that they kind of inferior? You know, he's saying he gives these things generously to all. He is not a respecter of persons. And he's not, James is not saying there are some of you who are lacking wisdom, is he? No, he's saying all of you are lacking wisdom. And therefore, all of you can be the recipients of God's good gifts of this wisdom. Fourth, he gives to all without reproach. What does this mean? Well, here's how we might 
say it. Yes, I can loan you more money, but what happened to the money I gave you last month? Or put it this way. We can say, yes, I'll help you get ready for your trip, but you should have started preparing for it two weeks ago. What's up with that? See, those are two examples of giving with reproach. And giving with reproach is a giving that is at the same time digging at our weaknesses, our failures, and making sure that we know it. And God doesn't give wisdom to us while at the same time reproaching us. If he did, it would be like God saying to us, the last time I gave you wisdom, you just went and did what you thought was best and ignored what I told you, so why should I give you wisdom again? That's what it would be like. Or it would be like this, why should I give you wisdom when you are the one who got yourself into this trial in the first place? No, God gives wisdom without reproach. Now, friends, that's really important because we are not like that typically. (laughs) We do say, sure, I'll give it to you, but what about last time, right? God's not like that. And see, those four things are just wonderful, aren't they? God is a, a giving God. He gives generously. He gives to all, and he gives without reproach. So God knows, friends, what we're made of. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're made of dust. He knows that life is difficult for us. He knows that we need his help and we need his wisdom. And he is happy to help. God gives with an unwavering and spontaneous generosity regardless of our previous record. And so, friends, we need to remember that diligence in prayer is not measured, hear this, by how long you pray. He's not some prayer taskmaster saying, you know, I require 30 minutes of prayer. You got the 28 minutes, tough cookies. It's not how God works. He's not some, it's not somehow measured by your posture in prayer like, you know, okay, my hands are together, somehow power ascends from my hands, right, to God and down to me. If that doesn't work, then I'll get on my knees because that's, that's powerful prayer when you're on your knees. And if that doesn't work, you're flat on your face. These are really serious prayers. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the posture. I think a posture can, can exercise humility, can be can be helpful for you to get your heart in the place where it needs to be. But God is not impressed by your posture so that he will give you more. It's not measured by the words that you use. You use big theological words. Lord, we thank you for your propitiation. Covered all my substitutionary issues that you, you know. He's not, a simple language is sufficient. You're not trying to impress God with your words. And and it's not the passion in your voice. Now, friends, hear this. The prayer that God wants is a prayer that believes. It's confident that what God says, he actually means. And because what he says he actually means, I'm going to believe it. Now, there's a simplicity about that, isn't there? I'm going through a trial. Excuse me, I've got to go for half an hour and I've got to do it. No, you're going through a trial and you're saying, God, I know this is what you said and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to believe. I need wisdom. Please, would you give me wisdom? And God says, I'll give it to you. Now, the means by which we gain that wisdom is through his word, and by understanding his character. And sometimes in that moment, what God uses is the stored stuff that over time we have gathered in our mind, the word of God that is settled in our heart. He brings things to our remembrance and he refreshes our hearts and our minds about who he is and what he has done to give us new perspective, fresh awareness for our particular trial. God gives us wisdom He delights to do that. But he's saying, ask for it. So, 
was a need for diligent prayer, there's also a need for dependable faith. Dependable faith. He says in verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. So James is giving his readers a command that says, you lack faith, so go to God in prayer and ask him for wisdom. wisdom. And now, he says, when you pray, ask in faith without doubting. So in order to understand this, we want to think about this both negatively and positively. We'll begin with the negative, because James kind of lays out the negative, and we'll reflect then on what the positive is. So let's first of all look at doubting faith. And I know those two words don't seem to go together, but you'll understand that actually there is, there is a mixture taking place here. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So what does this faith look like, this doubting faith? First of all, it is driven and tossed. It's like a piece of cork that's bobbing on the waves of the ocean, just bouncing all over the place. It is completely out of control. It has no ability to determine what direction it's going to go in. It's, it's just at the mercy of whichever way the waves are moving. And it's a wild ride because just as, as the cork thinks it's going this way, a wave's going to come and move it this way. Now, we've all done this before, I am sure, You've been at some park somewhere where there's a bridge and there's a stream, and so you know your kids are tugging on you. Say, "Oh, can we throw something in there?" So they get a little piece of wood, and you drop the wood in, and they drop their wood in, and you try and figure out which one's going to win. And, and as it goes down through the stream, it meanders all these different places. Now the wood isn't in there; it's not swimming, right? The wood is just there. And what is happening is, is the actual flow of the current of the water is moving it in, in certain ways down through the stream, and obstacles get in the way. It is completely out of its own control. It is under the control of the current, and it has to endure the obstacles that it will run into. And friends, that is what a person is like. He may be, he may be moving, he may be... Uh, moving to nowhere, and he is completely out of control. That's what this person who's doubting, he's tossed, he's driven. And here's how the Apostle Paul speaks of it when he's talking about Christians not being like this anymore. In Ephesians chapter 4, notice what he says. He says, until we all attain the unity of the faith, uh, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The old man, the man that is captivated by the world, is tossed to and fro by various truths, by cultural standards. He really thinks he's in control, but he's not. The world is in control of him. And so he's tossed. And this is what doubting faith does. It, it, is, it is ultimately bouncing around. It vacillates. Secondly, he's double-minded and unstable. Look, notice what it says in verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Literally, this idea uh, double-minded means two-souled or two minds. He has one mind set on God, and he has another mind set on the world. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress called this man Mr. Facing Both Ways. It's like a man trying to ride two horses in two different directions going to end up in disaster. So in practical terms, the double-minded man has a sense of what is right, but a love of what is wrong. All right, A sense of what is right, but a love of what is wrong. He turns to human resources rather than trusting in the Lord for answers. He comes to God for wisdom, but knows in his heart that he has no intention of doing what God said. Now ask yourself the question, when you go to God in prayer, when you're facing a trial, is this how you pray? You go through the motions of prayer, 
but you know in your heart you have no intention of doing what God will reveal to you to be wisdom for that trial? It's like Augustine's prayer. Lord, make me pure, but not yet. It's Friday, Lord. I want to be pure, but can we wait till Monday? I want purity. I want godliness, but I still want this over here. He says, Lord, I want wisdom. And the Lord says, okay, I want, I want you to go to that person you've sinned against humbly and admit that you were wrong and that you gave into your flesh and then asked forgiveness. And that person responds to the Lord and says, thank you for that, Lord. I see where you're going with that. But I really don't think that the conflict's that bad and I'm not going to do that. But you came to me for wisdom. I gave you what you needed to do. And you're saying, I want wisdom, but I'm going to do my own thing. You are a double-minded man. And then he says, this person is also unstable in all his ways. The idea there is you're vacillating. You're inclined one moment to do good, and the next moment you're going to do evil. So when James says that the, the doubting man is unstable in all his ways, he's identifying that this double-minded prayer is simply evidence of his divided character. And the real issue here is this, that a double-minded man has a divided loyalty. He hasn't yet figured out, is he loyal to Christ or is he loyal to the world? And friends, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Because the kind of faith that God wants you to have, a, a simple, dependable faith, is not a faith that is loyal to the world at all. It's a faith that's loyal to him. And so ultimately, if a person then is tossed, if a person is double-minded and unstable, then he says here, you will not receive God's help. Isn't that what it says here? For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. But then we turn this around and we, we make this positive here and we say, first of all, we don't want to have a doubting faith. We want to have a dependable faith. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith without doubting. So, so having looked at this negative, what does defendable faith look like? First of all, he's single-minded. Right? He is riding one horse in one direction, and that is toward the goal that God has set for him. He listens to what God says, and because he knows that God is right and good, he does it. He is genuine in his prayer for help and truly wants to do what God is telling him to do. If God says, I want you to go and humble yourself and admit your sin and ask for forgiveness, he listens, determined in his heart what he, he must do, and he trusts God and goes to do it. So he is single-minded. Secondly, as we reflect on the doubting faith, he is also stable. He's not the one who's in control, but he knows that God is the one who is in control. And he rests in that. He's not tossed by the winds of doctrine and culture, but is carried on by the providential hand of God, and he's fully aware of that. He is seeking to live out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which we quote often, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make, your straight, or make straight your paths. And to me, the heart of that text is, in all your ways, acknowledge him. You're saying, God, I'm focusing on you. I'm going to trust you, but I'm, I'm giving you the glory by saying your hand is at work here. So he believes, he trusts, he listens, he obeys, he is loyal to his Lord and Savior. He comes to God simply, he comes to God respectfully, he comes to God seriously, and he comes to God humbly. And ultimately we can say he will receive help from God. Dependable faith will receive help from God. God will give him the wisdom that he is lacking so that he can face the trial be steadfast, and continue to grow toward maturity. Now, friends, we need God's counsel. 
when it comes to facing trials. That's why before we even started the book of Job, one of the things that I shared with you is that the best way to face trial is to already have in place a theology of suffering. And when you have a theology of suffering, you've already established now a wealth of wisdom that you can apply as you then are going through that suffering. Rather than it's kind of like, you know, enter the trial, it's like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Because now you're not in the frame of mind to really be able to comprehend and understand what God wants. And what you end up doing is you end up just either reaching out to the world and its philosophies or Christians who are repeating the world's philosophies clothed in Christian terminology, or you're picking out verses of Scripture, wrenching them out of their context to say things that they don't say. And so this is something that we, we process through as we are growing in our walk with God. We're saying, God, give me wisdom. And that may be wisdom for a trial that is still a couple of years ahead. Help me to understand your ways. Help me to get a perspective of what you're like and what you call me to so that when that trial comes, and friends, that trial will come, you will have the wisdom to face that trial. Now, not all of us have walked down that path or at a place where we're saying, I have that wisdom, and the trial is hitting us now. And we need to pause and to say that God is a giver of wisdom to those who come humbly asking for wisdom in the midst of their trials. He wants to hear you, but he wants you to come by faith and a faith that is not doubting. Now, let me clarify here. Doubt is a natural part of who we are as Christians. It's not that we, you know, we, we, we never doubt anything. We, we always want to discover things, and doubt asks questions, but then discovers. You know, I wonder, does God, does God actually say this, or does he say this? Well, let me go to the Bible to find out what he says. That's, that's all doubt working its way out in a proper way. But the kind of doubting that's ta- being talked about here is this double-minded doubting. It's this it's this doubting that is, that is vacillating all over the place. It's being tossed. No, God is saying, listen, ask in faith, and I will give you a wisdom that will help you in the midst of your trial. And I want to I close today with three just kind of like summary pictures of the kind of faith that we can have. This is not necessarily... Uh, pulling from Scripture, but there's ways I'm trying to paint a picture here to help us understand some things, all right? So I want to talk a little bit, first of all, about what I'm calling wobbling faith. Now, the reality is, friends, this is, this is all of us, or has been all of us, or at times is all of us, right? The Christian who desires to live godly through the trial, but he struggles, she struggles to understand and gives in to doubt but is humble enough to come to God by faith and ask for wisdom, truly to di- desiring to do his, his will. A number of years ago, many years ago, when I was a child, there was this toy made by PlaySchool um, that was the rage. It was on the commercials all the time, and they were called Weebles. Now, for the younger generation, you have no idea what I'm talking about, and it's probably a good thing, all right? And, and they were basically egg-shaped characters, and, and basically you had, you know, like here's a village, and you had a policeman, you had a fireman, you had a family, and you had all these different... You, you play with these things. But the one thing anyone who played with Weebles knew is that Weebles, what? Wobble, but they don't fall down. And some of you are sitting around saying, how did so many people know how to say that? Now, the truth of the matter is, friends, that um, we do fall down, but not, not to the extent that we are not able to get up. A righteous man gets up. We fall down. We, we fail. We wobble. But we know that, that God is forgiving. We know that God has a path for us, and that path includes failure and sin and, and, you know, and, and humility. And we know that's all part of our journey toward maturity, that this is part of our steadfastness at work, and that God is testing us, and at times we'll fall down, but we are quick then to get up. So there's wobbling faith. And friends, I, I think we would all find ourselves into that category. But as we mature, there's something else that happens here. 
and you've heard me use this before, call it weather vane faith. The Lord isn't demanding perfect faith, and hear that. I mean, he, he would love it, but he knows that you're not going to get it, right? But he, he, he's looking for a faith that is pointing in the right direction. It's an imperfect faith that is loyal to Christ. And I just love this picture of a weather vane. Because the, 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 it's pointing in the direction that it needs to point. But it's going to be moving because of all the storms that come its way. But it's still fighting to point in the right direction. That's, that's how I'm thinking of it. That's the kind of image that it portrays for me. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the hall of faith, we note how faith is defined or described. And it says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not Seen. Now, isn't it interesting that we began our time today with Chris pointing out to us that we love Jesus whom we have not what? Seen. But as we get to the end of this chapter and we begin in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, looking back at all of these examples, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we are to have our weather vane pointed at Jesus, right? But it doesn't stop there, does it? It continues on. It says, who, talking about Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, isn't interesting language here based on James, right? Who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured, there's that Greek word, hupomeno again, the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're being called to have our weather vane pointed at Jesus, and Jesus had his weather vane pointed at the joy of fulfilling his responsibility as the Son of God who would go to the cross and die there for our sins. It's a weather vane faith, friend. And so, yes, we wobble, but at the same time, we need our weather vanes pointed in the right direction. And that's a heart orientation, friends. Finally, and I think this is really where maturity comes in, over time, we will have a weathered faith. This is faith that has stood the test of time. It has endured countless trials. It's seen God's promises and his steadfast love toward his children over and over and over again. It has experienced doubt, confession, repentance, trust, and provision, and as a result, finds it easier to trust God through the next trial. Some of you in this room have a weathered faith. You've been through it. Oh, you failed. <laughs> You've wobbled but you've kept your weather vane where it needs to be. And as a result, over time, your faith complexion is weathered. And that's an evidence of your experience. It's an evidence of your walk with God. And friends, that's something that we ought to desire and pursue. Someone who has weathered faith has a faith that has learned to truly count it all joy because they, they have a, a grand perspective of what it is that God is doing. So friends, James is saying, listen, you lack something. You lack wisdom. So ask for that wisdom. But in your asking, ask by faith with a single-minded trust that what God says he means and that he will do would help us as we consider this text in light of our situation, a trial that we may be facing, a problem that seems overwhelming. Lord, help us, first of all, to go to you and seek wisdom. Lord, not to turn to the world's ideas, but Lord, to seek your will and your heart and Lord, to pray confidently because of your character that has been revealed to us in this text. And then, Lord, to, to pray by faith that is single-minded. 
that is stable, that is seeking to do your will. Help us now, Lord, to to see our our trials afresh, but with a a God-centered blueprint, giving us direction, giving us perspective, giving us understanding. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen.